Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And so, Robert, you know that every now and then on the show, the age of the Earth and the age of the universe come up. We'll mention that the Earth is about four and a half billion years old or that the universe, the observable universe, is about 13.8 billion years old or we'll in some general way talk about the scientific concepts of deep time, some kind of observation that reflects deep time. And when we do this, I'm sure you've seen that we often get emails from listeners, listeners sometimes from particular religious beliefs or backgrounds asking us to help them sort out competing claims about the age of the earth. Yes, uh, we we occasionally receive emails like this. Uh, I've also seen uh, comments to these effects on uh, social media, uh, sometimes our own social media, but I've also seen it on social media accounts associated with other How Stuff Works podcasts. Mm-hmm. And I you know, we, we don't always take the time to really discuss this stuff because generally speaking, when we're talking about the age of the earth and the age of the universe, we're talking about scientific consensus. And we're generally referring to the, the age of the earth or the age of the universe so that we can d- discuss something else. We're generally right. discussing some other topic that uh, – that is placed upon the bedrock of this understanding of deep time. Yeah, and so we are going to be talking about deep time and about the age of the Earth in these next two episodes, but this is not because it reflects a serious disagreement among working scientists. It does not. There is not any serious controversy about whether the Earth is billions of years old. It absolutely is. And part of what we wanted to do in these episodes is actually use this as an example to explore one of the best things about science, which is that science helps create a synoptic view of history and the universe. It brings together so many different ways of exploring the universe that all converge on similar storylines and end up telling us the same thing in different ways. And when you do that, of course, that always increases your confidence that you're on the right track. You're finding out real information. Yeah, everything's not coming from a single individual or a single uh, source uh, of information. It's not, say, all coming from a single work of ancient literature. Exactly. But to kick us off today, uh, I thought maybe we should just look real quick at a couple of examples of emails people have sent us asking us to, to address this topic and, and reflecting a genuine desire to understand more about it. Right. Because I, th- I think you know, it's, we, we've touched on before, it's people aren't coming from a – don't necessarily from a place of just absolute uh, you know, refusal uh, – uh, well, some people are. But, well, some people are. But, uh, I mean, generally, especially if you're listening to this show, you are curious about the world. You're mm-hmm. curious about uh, about where it came from, where it's going. You you have a, a scientific mind. Uh, it's just maybe you haven't uh, been able to consume necessarily the right scientific uh, uh, data in some cases, such as uh, exactly why we believe the, uh, the Earth and the universe to be the, the ages that they are. So let's first look at this email from our listener, CJ. CJ writes, Hi, gents. I've enjoyed your podcast immensely. You guys have a way of making extremely complex topics approachable. It's been exciting to begin to grasp things like quantum theory and black holes, albeit at a ridiculously high level. This is exactly the reason I'd like you to do a podcast regarding the age of the Earth. I have a few preface points prior to getting into the specifics of my request. One, I believe in God, and based on some very personal experiences, I don't think I'll ever be able to abandon that belief. It falls in line with subjective 
consciousness, wherein there's no way for me to fully explain it from my viewpoint and no way for you to grasp it from yours. Therefore, I'm not looking to explore the religious origin stories more than necessary for the things I'm asking your insight on. Two, I'm admittedly undereducated when it comes to scientific methods regarding dating of objects through various methods. I've tried to do research on this on my own, but I find it difficult to get a picture of how and why the methods are sound. That's where you come in. My request is this. Would you please do a show that discusses the methods of scientifically determining ages of things, how these have been proven given the immense scaling from our relatively short observable timelines, and compare slash contrast this with the scientific claims of young Earth advocates? This may be two different show requests, I suppose, but I would like to have a better understanding of these forms of measurement while also gaining understanding of the potential flaws in the science-based claims of, the, uh, of a young Earth, uh, and gives a couple of examples. I hope to hear your insight on these matters. Thanks for the consideration. Uh, P.S. I imagine you have many listeners like myself who have these conflicting science claims about the age of the earth and who have trouble parsing them out. With much thanks, CJ. All right. And here's another one, uh, for example. And again, this just uh, helps, I think, put a face, put a voice on these questions. Uh, This comes from uh, a listener named Lucas. Quote, in many episodes, the hosts have made comments about the ridiculous nature of young earth creation, quote unquote, science. They often comment about how the young earth idea is easily disproved by geological dating methods and simple observation. However, young earthers claim that geological dating is unreliable and can be influenced by environmental factors. I'd love to see a show where the hosts look at geological dating methods and either debunk or confirm their accuracy and validity. Oddly enough, I have not been able to find much information on this topic. All I can ever find is young earth literature saying that the dating methods are flawed and inaccurate or mainstream science articles saying young earthers are morons. Nobody seems to be interested in actually proving or disproving the validity of dating methods. Keep up the good work, Lucas. Now, in this email from Lucas, I noticed something where he talks about the availability of different types of sources on this subject. And maybe this is a good moment for us to point out some of uh, some of what's bad about Google results on topics related to the age of the earth and evolution because I have noticed and I'm sure you have too, Robert. In fact, I know you have because you made a note about it. The, the top pages of Google results are just polluted with – propagandistic anti-science literature about the age of the earth and about evolution. Right. Well, I mean, on one hand, also you have just various uh, question websites uh, and message board type interfaces where someone's like, hey, what's the real uh, age of the earth? And then you have generally non-experts right. and people with with access to grind come in and uh, and argue about it. Toilet head Johnny on Yahoo Answers says, oh, the age of the earth is very old. Anybody who says otherwise is stupid. Right. And then, you, yeah, you do have these, uh, these very problematic websites. And, in, and normally, you know, I wouldn't even even want to call them out by name. But I I should point out to anyone uh, uh, out there listening, uh, and many of you already know this, um, but Answers in Genesis, a website, is not a reputable source on science or or objective reality. And I normally, again, I normally be uh, not be inclined to point something out like this, but the website does tend to rank very highly in search results for otherwise scientific questions regarding our world. Oh, all the time. Anytime you Google something about evolution or the age of the earth, it's on the first page of Google results. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. It makes it right up there. Another one, in, in fact, one thing I will say that is especially insidious is that there are tendentious websites pushing a non-science-based point of view that often end up uh, ranking very high and 
at the same time, they seem to be trying to disguise their religious affiliation. Uh, one website that comes to mind often shows up in results is a website called Evolution News, which tries to apparently present itself as some kind of neutral scientific website, but it's actually – it's a creationist propaganda site. It's run by the Discovery Institute, which is an intelligent design media machine. But it's not called like thescientistsarelying.com. It's called Evolution News. It makes it seem like it's a website that's just grabbing new articles about evolution discoveries. Yeah, and uh, again, I, I believe these these websites are just nefarious. They manage to um, they manage to get both science drastically wrong, and I, th I think get religion wrong as well. They they they. They, they try to force both into the same awkward shape and manage to uh, uh, shatter both vessels. Um, it, because as I've talked about on the show before, you know, I think you can, you can have a religious worldview or a spiritual worldview without uh, discrediting science, without throwing science to the wolves or bending it to the will of, uh, of a spiritual or religious model. Uh, so I think these exercises are entirely unnecessary yeah. uh, to say the least. Well, as we know, they're often based on particular theological beliefs having mm -hmm. to do with like the literal applicability of certain holy books and stuff like that. Right. And, and to be clear, um, for anyone out there who's perhaps not uh, religiously aligned, like this is this is not the majority of believers that are engaging in these uh, these 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 carefully uh, manicured models for, say, a, a young earth or a completely biblically aligned pseudoscience for our world. Like, this is a small majority of people uh, who have just managed to uh, produce websites that rank highly in, in Google via search engine optimization. Yeah. Um, now, I just want, I already said this earlier, but I want to stress again at the outset that we are not talking about the subject of the age of the earth because it's a controversial question in science. The approximate age of the earth is not a controversial question in science, though it used to be mm -hmm. until the 20th century it was. Uh, and we're going to explore that history a bit as we go on. But we're not talking about this topic because there's a legitimate possibility that the earth is, as many young earth creationists believe, somewhere between 6,000 and 10,000 years old. There, There is absolutely no scientific reason to believe that. And I hope by the end of these episodes, you will understand not just that there's lots of evidence that the earth is billions of years old, but that the evidence is not confined to single methods that can be you know, picked at and debunked. The billions of years of the history of the earth are an altogether view of every branch of science. It's part of this synoptic history that's been established by almost every material method we have of investigating the world. Now, I know some of you out there listening are definitely science enthusiasts and you're going to say, well, Robert and Joe, I already know this. You don't have to tell me. Or I not only do I know this, but I'm also not planning to get in an argument online or in real life with anyone who believes the earth is 6,000 years old. Why should I listen to these two episodes? Well, uh, I'll just say that there's going to be a lot of cool facts about uh, the history of our, our, our planet and our universe. Um, and, and that's ultimately, I think, the appeal of these episodes as well, is that the is that deep time is fascinating and it's yeah. full of these just wondrous uh, uh, facts that, uh, that that are really thrilling to think about. Well, yeah, and the history of the earth for so long was a mystery. I mean, think about, think about before we had any really good estimates of how old the earth is and to not know. You live on a planet. You don't know if it's been here for 6,000 years as maybe a literal interpretation of your holy book says or if it's been here forever as many – as Aristotle might have said. Mm -hmm. um, 
Um, so, I mean, th- that's a crazy question to contemplate. Yeah. Or was it here at all before uh, I woke up? You, I mean, you can get into, <laughs> right. into very ph- philosophical uh, uh, realms when you when you contemplate this. Uh, but of course, today we have we have science to give us a far more definitive answers. Now, I want to say one more thing, which is that while we do want to be forceful in refuting the idea that the Earth is just a few thousand years old, I don't want to just spend a couple episodes harping on how wrong young Earth creationists are and bash them for being so stupid. I, I don't think that's our game. You know, you don't have to be stupid to be tremendously wrong about things people engage in motivated reasoning about all kinds of stuff. Um, that That is a tremendously wrong, misguided conclusion but I'm not especially interested in just like insulting people for holding it. No, no. And then also science is a journey and we are, we are all on a journey, uh, uh, Joe and I included. Uh, so if you, if, if you believe or have believed uh, incorrect things about uh, the history of the earth, well, we are all continuing to figure out how the world works and we're all, we're all learning new things as we go. So, um, you know, absolutely no judgments. Uh, in that regard. Well, part of the humility that's introduced by a scientific worldview is the absolute certainty that some things you're pretty confident about right now will turn out to be wrong. Right. But the age of the earth is so well established at this point that it is not one of those things. Correct. Now, I think we should actually get into the history of beliefs about the age of the earth. Like, obviously, as we said, people have not always known how old the earth is. In fact, until the 20th century, there were all kinds of ideas all over the map. Uh, so I guess let's start by looking at this history. How, how did we get to now? What is the history of beliefs about the age of the earth? Well, I mean, the word the word belief is key here, of course, you know, because given non-scientific thinking, uh, given explanations in myth and folklore, I, I can really believe anything I want about the history of the earth, so long as I'm willing, again, to dismiss rigorous scientific investigation and, and think in favor of, of magic and fiction. And a lot of early discussions about the history of the world and like where animals come from and stuff like that, and you look at these natural histories from the ancient world, they're they seem to be largely based on just looking at what's going on around you and using your intuition. Yeah, trying to come up with a logical model yeah. for what the world is. Uh, so what is today mythology might be interpreted as a far more logical model in, say, uh, you know, ancient Babylon. Uh, but uh, an ancient Babylonian model uh, doesn't really um, you know, uh, uh, hold up to, to scrutiny if, uh, if it's uh, transported into the modern age. Right. But uh, tr- true enough, religions are often interested in the, the time span of things. And so their estimates for the age of the earth uh, and the universe vary. And it's also important to note here that especially for ancient faiths and ancient thinkers, there's generally no distinction between the world and the universe. Uh, the, you know, the, the world or earth was creation itself. Why would there be anything else, right? Um, yeah, these are generally geocentric ways of thinking. I mean, even if people didn't have a fully composed cosmology of planetary bodies orbiting the Earth and stuff like that, you generally would not have had any idea that the Earth is just one planet on a sort of in a back corner of some place in the galaxy. Yeah. So, some people saw the world as everlasting. Others limited it to the shape of our own life and assumed it had a moment of beginning and a moment of ultimate demise, uh, which, of course, is quite reasonable because, I mean, scientifically speaking, uh, the, the Earth definitely has a beginning and uh, it will one day have an end, uh, which we've discussed on the, the podcast before. Uh, yeah. One of my favorite things about creation stories uh, for the Earth is how common it is to have a story where the Earth is made out of something 
something else, something mm-hmm. that's alive, like made out of the dead body of a slain sea monster yeah, or something like that. Yeah, we get into this. I believe it was uh, Order Out of Chaos, an older episode. I'll try to remember to link to that episode on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. But when uh, religions provided time frames for the birth of a world, you know, it tended to vary. So in Orthodox Judaism, the universe is less than 6,000 years old. And uh, biblical creationists, as we've discussed, get caught up on the 6,000-year-old thing as well. And certainly we do have to point out that six millennia is a long time. This is for the, humans. Yeah. For humans, yes. It is a span of time that includes the rise and fall of many great civilizations, the Indus Valley Civilization. Every Chinese dynasty, the kingdoms of Sumer and Egypt, it is essentially the span of written language for our species and is a 6,000-year ladder emerging from the shadows of prehistory. But we, of course, know that that humans existed before this point. Uh, The the first agricultural uh, revolution uh, dates back to 10,000 BCE. Uh, The Neolithic period began in uh, uh, 10,200 BCE, and this is an important age in the evolution of human technology. Uh, and the, the earliest use of fire, that takes us back 1.5 million years. Stone tools take us back more than 3 million years. Now, one of the funny things is that we're so used to dealing with uh, theologically based beliefs that the earth is much younger than it is. But it could have gone the other way, right? You, people could have theological reasons for thinking that the earth is 100 trillion years old or something. Yeah, I mean some uh, religions err in the other direction. Uh, take uh, Hinduism, for instance. Uh, the Vedas explain that there's a continual death and rebirth of the universe. Uh, for each time, the universe lives through four ages or yugas. There's the, the Satya Yuga, the age in which God spoke to man. Uh, there's the Treta Yuga, the age of the Ramayana. There's uh, the Devarpa Yuga, and uh, then there's the, the Kali Yuga. The, this is the modern age, and you have the war of the Mahabharata bridging these, these, uh, the, the third and fourth Yuga. All told, the four yugas make up one Maya yuga, which is a single day in the life of Brahma, the creator god. But uh, for humans, it's uh, 4,320,000 years. Brahma lives 100 years, each composed of 360 Brahma days. So that's a grand timescape of 155 trillion years. Whoa. So, yeah, the numbers get, uh, get pretty crazy pretty quickly. So we've seen all of the apologetics arguments that the earth is much younger than it is. But I wonder, are there apologetics arguments that the earth is much older than it is? I mean, I don't know. You, now, now, here's something that I hadn't thought about until now. But if you get into these various um, ideas about the world that we live in now being a computer simulation mm-hmm. in, a, in a futuristic age, well, the, that would be a model uh, that would essentially argue that the, the world is older is actually older than we believe it to be right now because we are not in 2018. We are in whatever uh, futuristic year it is that we have the uh, simulation technology to imagine ourselves in 2018. Wow, now that's interesting. And you could have interesting time dilation effects due to the simulation of the passage of time. Yeah. So obviously every believer would be different. Mm -hmm. But but in general, do you think a world simulated on computer hardware – would be somewhat compatible with Hindu theology? I mean, you do get into that whole idea of, um, you know, what is what is the true reality and mm-hmm. how is it hidden from us? So in a sense, it is. I mean, I don't want to speak uh, 
for Hinduism or for uh, you know you know true uh, Hindu believers and the vast uh, you know diversity that is found within Hindu belief. But yeah, if you're kind of leaning into it and like uh, you know with the uh, sci-fi in one hand and Hinduism in the other, yeah, you can make those connections for sure. Interesting. Now, of course, one of the things that we're – people like us are going to be most familiar with is the fact that Christians throughout history have tried to calculate the exact date of creation by reading the Bible literally and trying to use that literal reading to trace the amount of time between events in, in known history back through all the begats to the creation of the world in Genesis. The most famous of these literal biblical chronologies is from the 17th century Irish Archbishop James Usher. Uh, you've probably heard of the Usher chronology before. And Usher tried to use a genealogy-based approach to the ancestors of Jesus, tracing all the way back to Adam, the first man in Genesis. And he eventually concluded that the world was created on October 26th, 4004 B.C., at 6 p.m., 6 in the <laughs> afternoon. See, this would really suck, though, because if this were the case, that means you're created and then instantly you only have five days to get a Halloween costume together. October is always over too fast anyway. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of which, uh, October, always a great month for stuff to blow your mind. Uh, so if if you're not anticipating it already, look forward to a lot of cool Halloween-related oh, topics. That might be the case. We've probably got new, new, new listeners, new ones of you out there this year who just started listening to our show, and you don't even know that every October we do monster science all month. Yeah, this is nothing but Halloween all month. Sometimes it spills over a little. I'm so excited, Robert. I can't wait. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, but w wait. Back. we got to stay on task. It's not October yet. That's right. Or if it is, it's uh, 4004 BCE, right? Or I guess it's just BC if we're just dealing with, uh, with this guy's uh, uh, ideas about the, the history of the earth. I guess so. So for a long time in much of the Christian-dominated world – that date was taken as pretty much correct. You know, people might have had some kind of differences about how he calculated exactly what different parts of the Bible mean. But many Christian believers uh, thought that the earth was about 6,000 years old for the past few hundred years. Though I have to wonder, you must get into some kind of strange middle territory when you try to fit, uh, say, geologically significant events in the Bible with what we see in the natural world, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, a big one, of course, is the the Great Flood. Right. Uh, and uh, there's actually an older episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind that uh, that, that goes into the Great Flood um, uh, quite a bit. And not only uh, the uh, the Abrahamic traditions of, uh, of the Great Flood, but also the the the, the, uh, the Great Flood as we see in Chinese traditions, Chinese mythology, yeah. uh, which itself is is, uh, is utterly fascinating. Uh, but yeah, you get into you, you, it, it took a while for modern scientific understanding of Earth's um, geological and and biological history to fully disengage from uh, Western Christian religious traditions to fully remove the sacred time frame from the the, the profane time frame. And so the earliest approach, uh, approaches uh, framed the antediluvian world uh, within periods of pre-Adamic and Adamic time. So <laughs> you ended up – I mean the, the, the sort of the – I wouldn't say it's a tragedy. But the, the situation is you ended up people essentially trying to scientifically understand geology. Mm -hmm. But they were hamstrung by these um, – by, by this necessity to somehow fit in a great flood and uh, uh, the time of Adam. Yeah, and I imagine it's especially complicated by the idea that the flood in 
in Christian and Jewish tradition has moral dimensions to it. Oh, right? yeah. So it's not just something that they believe happened to have happened in the past. You know, oh, at one point a bunch of water came down and flooded the whole earth. But they believed that like it happened for a reason to purge the wickedness of creation that had gone wrong. Yeah. Now, now that being said, there is a lot of really cool uh, uh, scholarship on – you know, what inspired these myths of the Great Flood, mm-hmm. be it in Mesopotamia or in China, and uh, and what kind of evidence we have for those situations? But those are still the, the Great Flood as it occurred, and it was you know we're, we're not really talking a global flood; we're talking regional floods. Mm-hmm. Um, these would have occur, would have occurred within human history, and you can't really if you're taking that and you're trying to understand geologic history, it's just not going to fit. Well, of course not. I mean, yeah, geological time and human time are are so different. I mean, you mentioned earlier the idea that 6,000 years is a long time and it is a long time for us. For us it's, yeah. the, it's the blink of an eye mm-hmm. in, in geologic time. Very little happens in 6,000 years geologically. But sorry, anyway, to come back to the idea that you had people who were – in say like uh, the early modern and then enlightenment period, tr- trying to look at the world with a somewhat scientific eye, but but also still being strongly influenced by their religious worldview. Yeah, one of the earliest geologists was a 17th century Roman Catholic priest named Nicholas Steno, uh, and and he uh, he's actually achieved uh, three of the four steps to being declared a saint. Uh, but he was one of the the first to show that rocks tell their own stories. Sometimes uh, this guides uh, religious doctrines, and other times it refutes them. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, he ma- he made some some major movements, and as a result uh, of, uh, of of geology, by, by Darwin's time, most uh, clergy members abandoned the idea that a literal global flood had happened. Uh, but but for a while. Uh, Science progressed as if the Great Flood was a very real occurrence in the history of the Earth, uh, and, and science as a whole moved beyond this notion in the 18th and 19th century. But I am interested in this idea. We're back to the question, that, like from our um, geomythology episode. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, do you, do you think that there is uh, a good evidential basis for thinking that flood myths? are inspired by some kind of regional floods or something in history or that it just as easily could have been creative imagination? Uh, I think there's a lot of strong evidence that that it was inspired by actual floods because mm-hmm. floods occur. I mean you have people, right. ancient people especially, they're not living in the middle of the desert. They're living near bodies of water right. and bodies of water are subject to flooding, be it a river or a coastal region. And when they occur, the effects can be catastrophic uh, they, and they definitely make an impact. And in terms of uh, extrapolating this into a world flood, uh, I, f- I forget the name of the researcher offhand, but it, uh, he's referenced in that older episode. He pointed out that um, you know every every flood is a global flood if your world is small enough. You know, uh, <laughs> that's a good point. So uh, yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot of interesting evidence uh, that uh, you know, be it Mesopotamia or or China, that these are. The, these are tales that were inspired by actual flooding scenarios. All right. Well, I think we should take a quick break. And when we come back, we will look at some earlier attempts to scientifically determine the age of the Earth. All right. We're back. 
So it wouldn't be until the 20th century that we started to get an accurate figure of the age of the Earth. But there were scientists in previous centuries who tried to use scientific methods to infer the age of the planet and not just say, you know, reading religious texts to, to try to determine how, how long we'd been around. Uh, I found a nice little article that discusses several of these experiments by a French physicist named Jean-Paul Poirier. It's called About the Age of the Earth in Comptes Rendus Geoscience. And uh, Poyer points out that uh, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, who lived 1646 to 1716 – Leibniz, of course, was a big figure in a lot of fields. Uh, he was a philosopher, a mathematician, independently invented calculus. But Leibniz proposed in uh, his posthumously published book Proto-Gaia that Earth began as a molten sphere. And Leibniz, though like pretty much everybody in his time, believed in a creator of the natural world. He was not so into direct religious interpretations of nature. I read in this uh, book review in Nature that he was uh, once referring to people who see miraculous images in natural objects, you know, like the Virgin Mary in a pancake or mm -hmm. whatever, uh, see miraculous images in natural objects. And he wrote, quote, credulity fills in the rough outlines shaped by accident. And I think that's pretty much a, a correct view of how those perceptions come about. But uh, though he did not invoke a literal interpretation of the Bible in doing so, he, he still assumed a short history of the earth uh, and this sort of limited time frame hindered his thinking when he was trying to explore the natural history. Yeah, I mean it's just, it's, it is a preconceived notion of, uh, of what you're going to find. But there were people who uh, – before the people who were really on the right track, there were people who started to undermine the, the literal view of the 6,000-year the creation. Uh, for example, Georges-Louis Leclerc, uh, Count de Buffon, of seven, uh, he lived 1707 to 1788. He was this 18th century French naturalist and encyclopedist. Uh, he created this massive work of natural history called the Histoire Naturelle. And in his introduction a la Histoire des Minereaux in 1775, Buffon described how he had personally tried to determine the age of the earth by way of an experiment. So you think, well, how could you do an experiment <laughs> to determine the age of the earth in the 18th century? What would that experiment be? Though he was wrong, this was actually a really clever approach, I thought. Buffon wrote, quote, I have made 10 wrought iron cannonballs, the first one half an inch in diameter, the second one an inch in diameter, the tenth one five inches in diameter or about 13 centimeters. And so he heated all of the cannonballs to what he called white heat and then measured the length of time it took to cool them all down to two different points. Number one, when they were cool enough to hold in the hand for a second without burning. And then number two, when they cooled to room temperature. So you can just imagine Buffon out there like fondling these hot cannonballs <laughs> trying to figure out. I mean, and so he's doing this by touch, like not even using a thermometer. But he, he gets some interesting results even despite these methods. So Buffon found through these experiments that uh, the cooling times were related directly to the cannonball's diameter. There's just a direct linear relationship between how wide the cannonball is and how long it takes it to cool down to these two points. And he used this information to extrapolate to the age of the Earth. He says, you know, if we know the Earth is X number of miles wide, then I can tell you how long it took to cool down from this molten point that Leibniz had, uh, had proposed. So Buffon writes, 
writes, quote, Now, if we wanted to infer with Newton how much time was needed for a sphere as big as the Earth to cool down, one would find according to the above experiments that instead of the 50,000 years that he had estimated for the Earth's cooling time to be down to its present-day temperature, one needed 42,964 years and 221 days <laughs> to cool it down to a temperature where it would not burn and 96,670 years and 132 days to cool it to room temperature. As Poirier points out, that's kind of some illusory uh, accuracy there. It's like so specific, it sounds like he must be right. <laughs> but he was way wrong. Uh, though Buffon argued that the real material constituents of the earth, like clay and sandstone, would take less time to cool down than pure wrought iron and created an updated estimate based on that. Quote, by using in this sum only glass, sandstone, hard limestone, marble, and the ferruginous matter, one finds that the earth sphere solidified down to its center in about 2,905 years, that it cooled enough to be touched in circa 33,911 years and to room temperature in 74,047 years. Okay, well, that's still – that's more than 6,000 years, but still uh, rather short of the actual age. Right. So Poirier discusses several reasons that Buffon's calculation was so far from the truth. Quote, he implicitly assumed that the cannonballs had a uniform temperature from their surface to their core and that this temperature decreased through time. Now, of course, this is not the case with the Earth. And while Buffon's experiment is fairly accurate with small balls of uniform material, the principle that there's a linear relationship between the diameter of a ball and the cooling time becomes less and less applicable as the sphere get bigger. Poirier calculates that this linear relationship breaks down for spheres once they reach about 17 centimeters in radius. <laughs> so that's sort of what made him way off. And though he was very wrong, Buffon was actually also influential, not in the answer he came up with, but in his questioning of the theologically received idea that the earth was 6,000 years old. He, he sort of showed, look, the earth could be as old as anything as far as we know, and we might as well do some experiments to try to figure out how old it could be. And so others tried to follow suit, like uh, Kelvin also tried to infer the Earth's age by doing a similar calculation about cooling times, except what he did to infer the rate of the Earth's cooling was to use the geothermal gradient, which is the rate at which the Earth gets hotter as you go deeper into its crust. An example here would be that there's sort of a rough approximation that the Earth gets about 30 degrees Celsius hotter for every kilometer down into it you go. And Kelvin assumed that the Earth cooled by conduction from the surface. So this thinking led him in 1863 to propose that the age of the Earth was between 24 million and 400 million years. So getting a lot closer. Yeah, though, I mean, critics may argue that, well, it's only getting hotter in the middle because that's where hell is. <laughs> that's a very good point. Kelvin didn't even consider that, I bet. <laughs> Uh, so, but why why was Kelvin also wrong? Why why did his cooling calculation not work either? Even though he used this gradient cooling method. Well, you might be thinking, what about the radioactive heating of the Earth? It is true that radioactive materials in the Earth do lead to continuous heating, but Poirier says this is actually not very important when it comes to measuring the temperature gradient method. Uh, so 
The actual answer, Poirier says, is because Kelvin assumed that the Earth cooled through conduction. In fact, one of Kelvin's assistants, John Perry, pointed out that if you assume there's a higher thermal condu conductivity inside the Earth, you would get an age in the range of a few billion years. And in fact, we now know that over large timescales, a lot of what's going on inside the Earth behaves like a liquid, which allows matter to flow somewhat along with the heat, causing a heat transfer from the core by convection rather than just conduction. And understanding the convection cooling of the Earth can help give us an estimate on the correct order of magnitude, which is billions of years. And this brings us to the correct answer. We mentioned it earlier in the episode, but there there is a fully formalized consensus across the sciences now that the Earth is about 4.5 billion years old, about 4.54 billion. Yeah, because about 4.54 uh, uh, billion years ago, this would be the point at which it uh, fully uh, condensated from clouds of interstellar gas and dust, then drawing in a final barrage of uh, planetismals that fell into its mass. Enormous heat stirs within its depths. And this, of course, is just a distant uh, minuscule spinoff from the formation of the universe itself. Right. Of course, we've got the age of the observable universe, which is about 13.8 billion years, though we're going to be focusing more on the Earth today. That's just to point out that obviously the universe is much older than just the planet we live on. Which, again, was, was far from a given in earlier uh, religious mythological ideas about the creation of, of the world we live in. Yeah. Why wouldn't you just assume that the planet you live on in the entire universe were the same age. Yeah. But if you were with us through that history section, you might be asking, hey, wait, wait, wait a minute. Now, the estimated age of the Earth has changed wildly before, right? We were going from tens of thousands to millions to billions. Don't you think it could change wildly again? Isn't it possible that the scientists could all tomorrow discover that they were wrong and the Earth actually is six to 10,000 years old? In a way, you, you always want to emphasize that, of course, science doesn't deliver final verdicts. It just sort of like it gives you theories that have confidence in predictions. You know, you, right. it gives you a theory that says if you use this theory to predict what you'll find in the future, you're going to find it every time. And a good theory will help you find it pretty much every time. Right. But the answer to this is, is basically no. It's not going to wildly change again because establishing the Earth's age has been a process of calibration with ever-increasing sensitivity of methods and increasing agreement of findings. Uh, I could see maybe there's an off chance that uh, – I don't know – that some there could be – further calibrations of the age, but we're not going to find out that the Earth is less than billions of years old um, because there's been this statistical convergence across all these different disciplines of science, all zooming in on the true age of the Earth, and all of them end up agreeing it's old. Nothing tells us that it's thousands of years old. So it's not just direct dating methods that we've come up with to tell us that the Earth is old. It's it's nearly every type of science there is that tells us the Earth is old. Yeah, so something we're going to be touching on a lot uh, in not only this episode but the, the next episode is that yeah, if you if you throw out the uh, the, the the scientifically accepted age of the Earth and the universe, uh, you have to throw out pretty much every other area of science. You don't get to keep uh, 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 geology. You don't get to keep the dinosaurs. Uh, and this is something that always ticks me off, especially as a, um, 
uh, as a father and someone who reads a lot of dinosaur books uh, to his son, uh, it enrages me when I find a creationist book uh, that that features uh, cool-looking dinosaur illustrations. They always do. They've got good illustrations. Yeah, but I say no. You do not get to have cool dinosaurs if you are going to uh, use this alternate view uh, of uh, this non-scientific view of 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 the Earth's timeline and how uh, life emerged on the planet and, and indeed what dinosaurs uh, were and, and what dinosaurs are today in the, the forms of uh, their avian descendants. No, dinosaurs uh, and other prehistoric beasts belong to science yeah. and, uh, and, and, uh, and science gets to keep them. <laughs> That's a really good point. I can almost sense you holding back a little bit. You want to <laughs> let loose that righteous rage, that dinosaur anger. Yeah, I mean this is where dinosaurs come from. They, they come from our scientific understanding uh, of the earth and the, the fossils embedded within it. Right. And the evolution of life itself. Right. So a lot of our second episode is going to focus just on all of the ways that, that the age of the earth touches on you know, every other way of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the rest of the episode today, I think we should focus on – this first episode, we should focus on direct methods of dating the earth, direct scientific experiments we can do that tell you this is how old the rock you're standing on is. All right. Well, on that note, let's take one last break for this episode. And when we come back, uh, we will speak to the rocks. All right. We're back. So one of the best tools we have for directly establishing the age of the Earth with measurements is a method known as radiometric dating. Now, you'll often hear people, especially casual critics of the scientific consensus on the age of the Earth, lump all of this under carbon dating. If you hear somebody refer to dating the age of the Earth with the phrase carbon dating, you know you're talking to somebody who has not done any research and they don't know what they're talking about. Carbon dating, also known as radiocarbon dating, carbon-14 or just C-14 dating, is only one type of radiometric dating among many. And in fact, carbon dating is completely irrelevant to establishing the age of the Earth. Of course, it does prove that the Earth is more than 6,000 years old, but it doesn't help you much more than that. Yeah, if I remember correctly, carbon dating only has a – has a limit of like 50,000 years. That's like it's it. about as deep as you can you can really date anything with carbon dating. Yeah, I mean, it's not like a hard limit, but there are – yes, that's usually cited figure. There's – at a certain point, carbon dating becomes inaccurate mm-hmm. because the amount of the radiocarbon left in the sample is going to be too small and it's going to give you erroneous results. But we'll get into the details of that in a minute. I guess first let, let's just – talk about the principles of radiometric dating. And all of this, it's again entangled with everything at the core of our current scientific picture of the universe. So you've got to go to the basic parts of an atom. (laughs) You've got an atomic nucleus in every atom. It contains protons and neutrons. Uh, Protons have a positive charge. Neutrons have no charge. The nucleus, of course, we know is surrounded by electrons, which have a negative charge. And as we know, how many protons an atom has in it determines what kind of element it is. So no matter how many neutrons, no matter how many electrons, an atom with two protons is always helium. An atom with 17 protons is always chlorine. 79 is gold. 82 is lead. 94 is plutonium, etc. Now, while the number of protons in an element is always the same, the number of electrons and the number of neutrons can change. And when the number of neutrons in an atom changes, we call these different forms of the atom isotopes. For example, carbon. 
A common stable isotope of carbon is carbon-12. That's carbon you're going to find all over the place. It's got six protons and six neutrons. But there's also the unstable carbon-14, which is used in carbon-14 dating. And this has six protons and eight neutrons. Now, within every atomic nucleus, you've got an interplay of forces. There's, there's a force that wants to hold the nucleus together and then you've got a force that wants to drive the nucleus apart and spit parts of it out. So a carbon-12 atom with six protons and six neutrons is generally held glued together by the strong force that holds the atomic nucleus together. But a carbon-14 atom with six protons and eight neutrons tends to decay. We call it decay, specifically through a process known as beta decay, where an atom shoots off an electron and a neutrino, and then one of the neutrons in its nucleus is transformed into a proton, which in this case makes a carbon-14 into a stable atom, nitrogen-14, with seven protons and seven neutrons. And then once it's nitrogen-14, that's a happy atom. It just hangs out. Unstable radioactive isotopes are very common. There are tons of them out in the world just humming along in the background, being radioactive, steadily emitting radiation to transform into more stable atoms. Uh, but you might have some questions at this point. Like, if unstable isotopes decay into stable isotopes, why are there any unstable isotopes left? Why aren't they all stable now, right? Why haven't they all decayed into this unchanging form? which is a good question. And there are two basic answers. One is that new unstable atoms can be created. Like, for example, you've got a high-energy event which can change a stable atom into an unstable form. A great example is carbon-14, which we talked about a minute ago. Say a, there, you've got a nitrogen-14 atom high up in the atmosphere. Uh, there's a cosmic ray bombardment. Cosmic rays send some neutrons shooting around in the upper atmosphere. They collide with the nitrogen atom and change it into a radioactive carbon-14 atom. But then the other major principle is that unstable isotopes decay at different rates. So while it's not possible to predict exactly when a radioactive decay event will happen, you don't know when the decay particle is going to shoot off, it is possible to determine the rate at which a certain percent of a radioisotope will decay over time. Like you can't predict individual events, but you can predict averages. Kind of like how, Robert, you know, you, you can't predict the outcome of a coin flip. But you can predict that if you flip a coin a million times, it'll land heads half of the time. Correct, yeah. And, uh, and while you're flipping it, you'll occasionally get streaks, which are ultimately meaningless in the grand scheme of, uh, um, um, of the coin flips. Exactly right. And the same thing happens with these radioactive atoms. Sometimes they might not emit one for a while. Sometimes they might emit a bunch at once. But over time, you know what that steady rate of emission is going to be. And so radioisotopes have what's known as a half-life. This is the period after which we know that half of a given sample of a radioisotope will have decayed into something else. So if you've got 10 grams of a sample with a half-life of one year, after one year, you'll have five grams of the original radioisotope left. After two years, half will be gone again, so you'll have 2.5 grams. After three years, half again, so 1.25 grams, and on and on, until the proportion becomes extremely small. Now, half-lives can, can vary wildly. Some are measured in fractions of a second. Some are measured in millions of years. Uh, cobalt-60, which is used in radiotherapy and medicine, it's got a half-life of 5.26 years and it decays into nickel-60. Oxygen-15 has a half-life of only about 122 seconds. 
It's only around for about two minutes before half of it decays into nitrogen-14. Carbon-14 has a half-life of about 5,730 years. And uranium-238, the most common form of uranium found in nature, has a half-life of 4.5 billion years. So with a half-life like that, even the age of the universe is not enough to eliminate all of it, right? It, it can just hang out. It'll be there for a long time. But another th important thing to understand is that when radioisotopes decay, they don't disappear, right? If you've got, you know, 10 grams of material and half of it decays, you're not left with five grams of rock. You will still have roughly the same amount of material. Just half of it will be changed into something else. And this gives us the evidence. Exactly. This is, this is the crucial part that comes in with radiometric dating because you will end up with what are known as daughter isotopes in a decay series. So you've got uranium-238 in, in a chunk of rock and it's decaying and those atoms will steadily turn into a series of daughter isotopes in a very known, steady, reliable progression turning into things like thorium, radium, bismuth, lead and so forth. And so this gives us what we need, right? If you know the rate at which a radioisotope decays and you know approximately how much of it there was to begin with in an object and you, you can measure how much is left, couldn't that tell us how old the object is? And this is exactly the principle in radiometric dating. So the principles of radiometric dating were discovered around the turn of the 20th century. I think it's sometimes uh, traced back to Rutherford. And there are many forms of radiometric dating, including uranium-lead, radiocarbon dating, potassium-argon dating, and then its more accurate derivative, argon-39, argon-40, or argon-argon dating, rubidium-strontium, uranium-thorium, and, and some others. And all these methods are different. Not, not every type of radiometric dating can be used on any substance or on any timescale. For example, you cannot use carbon dating to date an inorganic rock. Each method has different applications in which they're possible to use and in which they're most accurate. And what these methods have in common is that they look at an isotope that has a known rate of decay into another isotope – and there's some kind of historical clock-setting event, which is the time we know we're trying to trace back to. I mean, it's basic detective work, right? You're establishing a timeline. Yeah. It's kind of like if you intercept somebody and you know they've been driving in a straight line and you know how fast they were driving and you know where they started driving, then you can determine how long they've been driving. So one really common example of radiometric dating is, is radiocarbon dating. And as I've said, this has no relevance at all really to dating the Earth itself. It's used for dating things that used to be alive. And the principle works like this. About 78% of the Earth's atmosphere is nitrogen. Nitrogen, as we said a little bit ago, has a stable isotope, nitrogen-14, with seven protons and seven neutrons. And Earth's atmosphere is being steadily hammered by cosmic rays from space. Space really gives it a good knocking around. And these high-energy cosmic rays smash into atoms and knock neutrons loose. And then these neutron cannonballs they fly off and they smash into nitrogen-14 atoms and change them. They add a neutron, knock away a proton, and change nitrogen-14 into carbon-14 with six protons and eight neutrons. 
Now, as we said, most carbon is carbon-12 with equal numbers of protons and neutrons. But carbon-14 gets incorporated into carbon dioxide molecules in the atmosphere. And it enters the biosphere just like regular carbon-12 does, meaning it gets sucked in by plants. And then this radioactive carbon becomes part of the plants. And it gets eaten by animals that eat those plants. And then it gets eaten by the animals that eat those animals that ate the plants. So almost every living thing on Earth Earth has a steady, predictable ratio of carbon molecules in its body, mostly carbon-12, but with a known tiny fraction of carbon-14. But carbon-14 is radioactive. So over time, as we've explored, it breaks down through beta decay to become nitrogen-14 again. And so we know the half-life as well. Carbon-14 has a half-life of 5,730 years, plus or minus a known error bar. So if you find a dead carbon-based organism that lived on the Earth, you can actually look at the ratio of carbon-14 left in the remains, and you can determine roughly when it stopped taking new carbon into its body, which generally means, of course, when it died. But while carbon dating is great for illustrating the general principles of radiometric dating, it's also completely useless for dating the Earth for a couple of reasons. Number one, it of course only works on carbon-based organisms that were once alive. So you can date wood. You could date uh, – I don't know. What else would you want to date? The charred remains of an animal. Yeah, uh, ancient, ancient campfire. Mm-hmm. But you cannot date, say, a piece of granite. And then even if it did work on inorganic rocks, it doesn't go back far enough. The half-life of carbon-14 is like 5,700 years, which means that within a few tens of thousands of years, there's not enough carbon-14 left in the remains in order to give accurate results. As we talked about earlier, the limit's usually said to be somewhere around 50,000 years. After that, it's just not a useful method. So for carbon dating, this clock is set when the organism dies and stops taking atmospheric carbon into its body. At death, you've got this ratio of of carbon-14 atoms that's fixed and the carbon can decay. But how how do other clocks work? Because you've got to imagine that clocks are set in different ways for inorganic substances. There are a lot of different methods you can use. I figure one we should look at is maybe uranium-lead decay. So unlike radiocarbon decay, uranium-lead decay takes a long time. There's an isotope called uranium-235, and it's got a half-life of a little over 700 million years before half of it decays into lead-207. And underneath the surface of the Earth, you've got magma churning around. And magma builds up for thousands of years before getting spewed out as part of a volcanic eruption. And inside this magma that's collecting near the Earth's surface, there are these crystals called zircons that can form. A normal zircon molecule uh, contains zirconium, silicon, and oxygen. But sometimes these crystals get a little mixed up with some radioactive roughhousing. And the zirconium atom in this crystal can be substituted with a radioactive uranium atom. And this is because uranium has a similar outer electron structure to zirconium, so it can play a similar role in the molecule. And once these zircons with secret secret stowaway uranium atoms inside them are formed in the magma, the radioactive clock is set. Now we've got zircons with bits of uranium in them. 
The magma erupts out of the volcano, gets spewed everywhere, and the zircons are brought to the surface, including their radioactive stowaways, and then the ash and the lava containing these crystals harden into rock, and then way, way ahead in the future, geologists can discover these rocks, discover these zircon crystals, and measure the age of the zircons using mass spectrometry to determine the ratio of the parent uranium to the daughter lead. And once you know this ratio, you can establish the age that the crystal was formed in the magma before the eruption. And one advantage to this method is that the zircons do not incorporate lead naturally. So you don't have to worry about the crystals containing lead to begin with. Now, there are all kinds of things that can contaminate samples and screw up radiometric clocks. So it's very important when possible to understand everything you can about a sample and to use multiple methods to corroborate dates and give confidence. For, for example, with the uranium lead series I just mentioned, it's possible that a piece of rock that's got mostly zircons from one time period could be contaminated with zircons from a different time period. And this is why it helps to test with multiple crystals from each sample and to cross-reference with other methods of dating when possible. And th this is all part of what's known about these methods of testing, right? Because one, one of the things you see come up in um, like uh, cr creationist attacks on radiometric dating methods is that uh, sometimes the attacks are just like not founded in fact. But sometimes they are founded in fact and they're simply like announcing possible vulnerabilities of the method that are known to the scientists who use them. It's almost like announcing we can't trust lab results because somebody else's, you know, samples in the lab can be contaminated. And it's like, well, yeah, scientists mm -hmm. know that. That's part of the process. Or say pointing to a, a single journalistic error and then saying, well, this entire journalistic institution or journalism itself cannot be trusted. Right. So and so got, got a name wrong in an article one mm -hmm. time. Therefore, the newspaper they work for, it's all lies. Right. And as we've discussed uh, plenty of times before, getting it wrong occasionally is part of, of scientific process, progress uh, and the process itself. Right. Um, which, is a, which is a rather interesting uh, reversal from, uh, from people who really double down on, uh, uh, say, uh, you know, biblical truth or some sort of theological model. It is uh, held up to be right all the time for all times. Well, right. I mean, that's sort of the problem with infallibility, right? right. <laughs> like the idea that a that a source is infallible would mean that you, your your trust in it is invalidated by a by a single mistake. Whereas the trust in any type of lab test, I mean, this is not unique to radiometric dating. Any type of measurement performed in science is subject to experimental flaws, uh, mistakes, uh, contamination of the sample, malfunctions of equipment. All, all that kind of stuff can happen. And that's why it's important to use multiple methods and to cross-check and corroborate. Now, just a quick note, I will say this does not mean that uh, – I don't mean to say that uh, religions themselves do not change. Obviously, religions change to meet the uh, the, the needs of, of modern humans. And I think that the uh, there are plenty of great examples of individual uh, religious traditions that, that change and adapt to meet new modes of understanding and uh, the needs of, of modern humans. Well, yeah, as we said at the outset, not every religious person is tied to some kind of literal understanding of a holy text. Mm -hmm. All right. I think this is a good place for us to, to break. Uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, cap off this episode, but we are going to pick up the conversation in a second episode. And in that episode, we are going to roll through a, a lot of the examples uh, of, of, of scientific endeavor depending upon 
these uh, uh, these these uh, these established estimates for the age of the universe and the Earth. Yeah, we will talk about the 20th century work that established the modern age of the Earth estimate. We will talk about reasons that we can know radiometric dating methods are reliable. And then we'll talk about the synoptic view of science that shows that really an old Earth is an, is an indispensable part of our picture of reality. All right. And in the meantime, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's our mothership. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the podcast. You will find blog posts. You'll find uh, uh, links out to our various social media accounts. Uh, right there on the front page, there's a tab at the top that says Store. Click on that, and you go. You can go pick up some uh, lovely T-shirts, uh, what uh, pillows, um, stickers for your street signs and laptops that have our cool new logo on it. Uh, go check those out. It's out. It's a great way to support the show. Uh, we also have custom designs based on some of our more popular episodes, and including that wonderful black hole uh, shirt. Oh yes, fear catastrophique. You gotta yeah. buy it. Yeah, people Merch are picking up. that up. Uh, and hey, if you want to support the show in a way that uh, doesn't cost you any money, uh, the best thing you can do is just go and rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. We're talking Apple Podcasts, uh, etc. But that helps out the algorithm. That helps out the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, uh, to suggest a topic for a future episode, or just to say hi, let us know uh, how you found out about the show, where you listen from, uh, or just send pleasant greetings. You can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.